Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes William B. Allen, a resident scholar and former CEO at the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, editor of the new book, The State of Black America, Progress, Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic. And William B. Allen, welcome to The Schilling Show Unleashed. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'd like to start by defining black America because there has been some discussion in previous years about who really qualifies to be black and people from different places may not consider themselves so. So how do we define black America? I think we have to refer to common usage. There, there is no particular definition in a country that's increasingly uh, being absorbed into indistinguishable elements. So we are talking about the fact that historically there was a population that was brought in from Africa primarily as slaves, and which over time became distinct from the mainstream. But after the end of slavery began that long march into the mainstream. So, so black America are those who post-slavery marched into the mainstream. I want to ask you just to give us a brief overview, if you would please, William, of the state of black America presently. If you had to put it in a thumbnail, what do you see? The present situation is one in which we are, as it were, uh, how shall I put this, in denial. That's probably the politest thing I can say. Uh, Which is to say, there's been enormous progress and that progress is constantly denied. And so the greatest task facing us is to see things as they truly are, to see through the 20th century advances in the face of great adversity, and to see in the post-20th century, the late 20th, early 21st century, a persistent campaign of rhetoric that poisons, injects poison into the culture by denying that the progress has even happened, insisting, of course, that black people are dependent victims. So as we look at this denial, what are the reasons that you can ascertain that people would want to deny what is true? Well, there are many reasons, of course, and we can identify two of them to begin with. One, of course, is simply that there are people who think they can leverage that kind of divisive rhetoric to positions of power. And we see them consistently do so. And they uh, trumpet notions such as if you vote for someone other than me, you ain't black, and so forth and so forth. But then there's another side, which I want people not to forget, and a side which probably contains some goodwill people who honestly believe that America is evil and should be overthrown. And they use every device they can to propagate. So they now push woke anti-racist campaigns, talk about systemic racism and the evils of capitalism, not because they themselves are looking for power, but because they are disenchanted 
with the American heritage and wish it to be replaced by something else. We've had a lot of trouble here in Charlottesville, Virginia, where this podcast emanates over the past uh, four or five years. They decided to convene a government committee to help people discuss the topic of race. I said that that's a better conversation to happen in the church. But why is it so difficult to discuss this subject? And is talking about it through the government the answer? Well, it's difficult to talk about it because of the very campaign you and I were just mentioning. The truth is that there are racists in the United States, as there are all over the world. Uh, However, there is not a capital R racism. And our culture and politics have been distorted by the constant attempts to invent a capital R racism in this late 20th, early 21st century period. So it's hard to talk about it because people know that whenever they open their lips, they're going to be branded with the scourge of racism with a capital R. And they're going to be put out of polite company. They're going to be canceled. They're going to be silenced. So that's the danger. I'll tell you a quick story about this. When I was leaving the Commission on Civil Rights as chair, I had a session with the Wednesday group on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And these were the Republican members who gathered on Wednesday in a study group. And I gave them an account of the present situation and gave them some strong and candid suggestions about how to talk about these issues. And almost to a person in that group, they said to me in response, we can't say that we would be called racist. That was 30 years ago. Mm. And it's only gotten worse since then. The follow-up question I would have, William, would be, what is the correct answer? So someone says, I don't want to be called racist. and, And of course, we know today that's about the worst thing you could be branded with. How do we respond to someone who's afraid of being tagged like that? I think when I've got to put on the whole armor of God and realize that you're contending with forces of this uh, evil and disintegration that you cannot yield to, it will take courage to speak boldly, but that's what's called for. There's been a lot of discussion in America about who can qualify as a racist, and particularly that black people cannot be racist because they don't have power. I'd love for you to address that concept. Well, of course, it goes without saying that being racist with a small r has nothing to do with holding power. It has to do with holding attitudes and views. And, of course, every human being is capable of holding attitudes and views, and whoever denies that people cannot do so by virtue of race is being racist. So the argument that black people can't be racist is a racist argument, and it should suffice to explain to everyone that you should pay no attention to such claims. Yes, of course they can be, and, of course, that means all of us can find, even with our own families, racist, whether we are black or non-black. But again, there is no racism with a capital R operating independently like a force in the culture as a whole, shaping and directing the culture. That doesn't exist. In our local government schools, they have started with the premise that the United States Constitution is in and of itself a racist document that's coming from the superintendent and the school board. If that's the starting point for the discussion of America, how do we get past that? Well, it is not the starting point, frankly, and we get past it by denying it. And we can deny it not by simply saying we don't think so or we have different beliefs. The facts deny it. That's why I spend so much time counseling teachers and students to read the primary documents, because it is a falsehood that the Constitution was a racist document or defended slavery. It is a falsehood that the three-fifths compromise was a statement that blacks were only considered three-fifths of human beings. 
It is a falsehood. The factual record proves it. So part of what we've done in this book is not answer each and every one of those questions, but give a comprehensive overview of the historical development post-slavery precisely to show the falsehood of these claims. We show what those who authored the 14th Amendment had in mind and why that's an important contribution to the Constitution. And we show especially the extraordinary progress that the freed slaves made in the period, the immediate aftermath of the end of slavery. The tremendous growth in population between 1890 and 1860, pardon me, and 1890. The growth in literacy to roughly the 50% level by 1920 already. The incredible growth in family formation. And yes, economic advances. When there was the Tulsa massacre, it wasn't dependent, helpless people who were massacred. They were successful entrepreneurs who were forging their way into the middle class. So that story of the United States, the story of America, is a story of strength and resilience in the American culture, the American heritage, that your superintendent is denying falsely. William, I'd like to continue on the topic of economics, and I want to go now to the deprecation of capitalism and a call to socialism that is being embraced fairly broadly in America today. Do we need to defend capitalism because a lot of people seem to think it's evil? I always would say to people, the important thing is not to defend capitalism or to argue against socialism, frankly. The important thing is to defend liberty, freedom, self-government. For when that happens, then there is no alternative economic system that can be compatible with the people who are self-governing. To trade off central command, government direction of our lives for our own direction of our lives, is a fool's bargain. Forget about the distinctions in economic systems. There's really only one economic system, by the way. All trade is market trade, market economics. It's just that some of it happens under the heavy hand of government and some under a less heavy hand of government. More regulation and less regulation. That's really the only distinction. And self-government requires the minimum amount of regulation. And so that's what we ought to be talking about. That's the pathway to the greatest economic advance, i.e., the most highly developed level of self-government in the community. I'd like to talk a little bit about black America and generational wealth. I've had conversations before with the local NAACP head who was very concerned about the lack of wealth accumulation in black America. Would you address that? Well, yes, and that's one of the things I point out to people, that it is true that black communities across the United States, wealth accumulation is at a lower level than it is in non-black communities. But that's, of course, easily understandable, right? People only began the process of wealth accumulation post-slavery. They were only free to do so. Yes, there were some free black people prior to that time, but only a handful. And so it's a relatively recent thing. Secondly, during that period, it was only for the period up until about the advent of the Woodrow Wilson administration that there was any real opportunity to pursue uh, wealth accumulation because we adopted a taxing system which has increasingly developed since the second decade of the 20th century to cheat people out of the opportunity to accumulate wealth. People pay, say that people of lower income levels don't pay taxes, that the top 1% pay 40% of the taxes. That's all false. Everybody pays taxes. Whether you pay taxes directly because you receive a tax bill or you're paying it in the price of goods and services, paying it through your rent, paying it through diminished earnings, 
you're still paying taxes. And that affects the people of the least means more than anyone else in the entire country. Take a sales tax. It is a flat percentage. Those who have the least, therefore, pay relatively the most for what they acquire. Or take something still more serious than that. Take the way in which we use through the payroll tax and the effect of the income tax withholding, especially, on being able to interfere with people of the least means making any savings at all because it keeps them at the marginal level of existence. These are the things that cheat people out of the opportunities to save and therefore cheat them out of opportunity itself. And the accumulation of wealth depends upon having opportunity to act in one's own behalf. That means also to put away something for retirement and not have a false promise of retirement in a Social Security program that in fact doesn't actually accumulate wealth. This is the problem, and, and I think what you're saying is such great wisdom, but this is not being presented in education system in America by and large. And so instead, people are being told that the government is there to take care of them, and they should gladly cede the fruits of their labor to the government because they're going to be taken care of. Yes, and that takes us back to the rhetoric we were talking about at the beginning, where people have been reduced to dependent victimhood, and they've somehow internalized this. And so they look to the government for a helping hand, for a handout, I should say, rather than extending themselves a helping hand. That's the difference. People who are looking for a handout are not going to advance themselves. They're not going to accumulate wealth. The only people who are entrepreneurial, energetic, and creative who can extend a helping hand that can do that. Are there significant areas of black inequality in America when it comes to the economy? And if so, what do we do about them? The only significant area of inequality that we have in the country today is the unequal level of self-confidence in one's ability to provide for oneself. It is true, we must acknowledge this, as we pointed out in the book, that black communities have been shot through with the rhetoric of dependence and victimization. When Lyndon Johnson declared equal opportunity is not enough, he was saying to black people, you are not good enough. You cannot do it on your own. And he and many other leaders from within black communities have perpetuated that message in such a way as to make people think themselves they must depend on someone else. That is the most significant inequality because not having a sense of agency puts one at a great disadvantage relative to people who do have a sense of agency. And if that imbalance were corrected, then the basic economic distinctions we talk about would become meaningless because each would be in the position to leverage whatever opportunities he or she would have to their greater increase. And, and that would be more important than the question of whether one person has as much or more than another person of any particular good. So what we're seeing here is there are calls now for boards of directors, even laws in places like California, where I come from, that uh, mm -hmm. boards of directors must be composed of, of at least one of certain groups, uh, among them black Americans. The other day I was reading and saw that there was a new rule in the NFL for quarterback coaching teams. They must interview at least one black American in the process. Is this helpful or harmful to black America? Well, of course, it's harmful to the individuals who are subject to those competitions, right? 
because those, that's a distinct group of individuals. It's not a whole race or a whole community. It's just some subset of people who are qualified to compete for those positions. And when you say in advance, we're going to structure the competition so that only certain ones distinguished by reason of race or heritage will be able to compete, that's at the disadvantage of others who would otherwise be competitive. And that's the thing that needs to be focused on. That means that you're willing to settle for inefficiencies in whatever system you're running when you run it that way. You aren't looking for the best. You're looking to make a cosmetic statement. And your cosmetic statement comes at the expense of excellent performance. And that's unavoidable unless you're going to straightforwardly insist that you want the best you're going to sacrifice the best for something else, and in this case, for cosmetics. So, so that's the real question. Everybody suffers from that, black and non-black. The real story in the United States today, it's a really encouraging story, an optimistic story, no matter what else I say that may discourage people, I'm an optimist because America is manifesting, though it goes unobserved and uncommented, a great pace of absorption into the mainstream from all the distinct elements of the society. Like a great chemistry experiment where we're concocting a solution and we're mixing solvents and solutes. And we can see it happening up and down and especially at the base of the society. Down in the valley rather than up on the mountaintop as I like to put it. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is William B. Allen. We continue in a moment. Join the revolution. Online at shillingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Supported investigative journalism. Shilling Show Unleashed. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with William B. Allen, the editor of a brand new book, The State of Black America Progress, Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic. I'd like to go to culture and black America. And black America, for many years, generally speaking, has had a culture. Tell us about the development of that culture and what wonderful things have come from that. Well, the first thing I would say is that there are plural black communities in the United States, and they vary immensely among themselves. And the first thing we have to do is to recognize that diversity within and among black communities in order to appreciate what has happened post-slavery. So so if we look at something like the whole Harlem Renaissance, we're not looking at the whole, whole United States. We're looking at a particular 
form of cultural expression that was highly fertilized and cultivated in that local region and developed such things as negritude, for example, an abstraction that is meaningless to black people in multiple rural communities all across the country, but meant a lot there in Harlem. The whole idea of a black culture is, in that sense, misleading. The real culture of the United States is the culture of the United States. And one of the essays in this book, the essay by Robert Bland, uh, which details the history of post-slavery of black Republicans forging their way in and through the Republican Party and making contributions in American politics, illustrates that, that, that what they were doing was responding to the call of opportunity based upon the prevailing culture in the United States. And this is what Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells said in 1893 when their protest at the Columbian Exposition was voiced by them in terms of the progress made since 1619, and particularly post-slavery, as an index not only of black accomplishment, but more importantly, of American accomplishment. And so they said to the organizers, by excluding us, you're excluding the story of American strength and resilience. So thinking of black culture means thinking about that journey into the mainstream and a journey that involves shaping as well as receiving. This is interesting because I, I think about this and I agree with you 100%, but there seems to be a movement. I want to bring up one example for you to comment on, William. There seems to be a mm-hmm. movement, and I have some friends, some black friends who live here in the Central Virginia area who no longer celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, we have nothing to be thankful for. We're living in a horrible country, and that's certainly a dividing of the culture. I don't know how widespread that trend is, but what do you think of that? Well, that trend is widespread in one sense, not necessarily in the articulate sense that you've experienced, but in the vague, indistinct sense in which, as polling even shows, to a very high degree, you can find American blacks who express discontent and discomfort with life in the United States from the perspective of whether they belong or have a feeling of belonging. And so there is a high degree of alienation among and within black communities across the country, which I think is a direct reflection of the narrative of division, the rhetoric of division that the whole capital R racism, systemic racism campaign has produced. Because remember, that campaign is predicated upon a rejection of America in toto in terms of its foundation. And so it's not surprising that people who take that in become alienated. But I like to remind people that the exits are not crowded in the United States. That's a good line. I've got to remember that. We're talking with William B. Allen. The book is The State of Black America. One more point on the topic of culture and black America. I know this is a trend growing across all races in America, but let's talk about the black family, or the culture of the black family, and the increasing fatherless home. Well, that's a really important topic, and you heard me say earlier that after slavery, there was a tremendous uptick in family formation, a dramatic rise in family formation, uh, population growth, so many things which gave evidence of a solidly building culture, which by the 1940s had great strength and some characteristics that people like Thomas Sowell have written about, which we all know from the past. And so the question becomes, what happened to that? Because by the time we get to the Moynihan report talking about the family breakdown, some transition seems to be taking place. I think several things are happening, but the only 
two things I will mention that really stand out decisively. Remember that AIDS to families with dependent children was not first targeted at black people, but at poor people in general in the context of the Depression. And that was mainly non-black poor from the point of view of the administration in charge at that time. But over time, as we began to rise from the Depression and move into the era of the later 50s and 60s, AFDC came to be seen as primarily a problem of dealing with poverty in black communities. In fact, when people talked about welfare, they always assumed that yet black poor people, despite the fact that in absolute numbers there were more non-black poor than there were black poor. Well, once it came to focus on black communities, it brought with it some baggage that was extremely pernicious, including driving fathers out of homes and saying you can only qualify for these payments if there is no man present. Otherwise, you can't qualify. Mm. That began a slow descent. Then at the same time, these communities came to be targeted for abortion. Abortion clinics were deliberately situated there in the heart of black communities, particularly urban communities across the United States. And so we also saw a declining population growth set in. Family formation, population growth, all those things began to decline in an era in which public policies were targeted on these communities and targeted in such a way as to produce dysfunction in those communities. Now, you couple that with the rhetoric. Equal opportunity is not enough. The rhetoric, you're a dependent victim. The rhetoric, you cannot possibly educate yourself or care for yourself or provide health care for yourself unless we first take care of all the material conditions of life. There's no pursuit of happiness unless we first establish your material security. And that's the message that was transmitted. Well, that's the context in which these questions about culture and economics that you're raising must be looked at in that context, I say, because that means people had had the doors slammed on their own exertion, on their own sense of agency, on their own responsibility for themselves. And in that context, it's by no means surprising that decline set in. Finally, I'd like to speak, William, about the church. And uh, does it trouble you that the church in America is largely racially divided? It is not as racially divided as it once was. And that people have settled patterns of community is not a surprise. That's what human beings do. They live in the areas where they were born, typically, and they associate among the people with whom they were raised, typically, and they worship with people who share convictions, typically. And so there's no particular reason that we should expect them, except that absorptive process I'm talking about advances, to begin to seem any different than they were before. But that is changing. Well, I mean, you take the Southern Baptist Convention, just as an example. Uh, it is extraordinary the length to which it has been permeated now with multiple elements, and it does not look simply as a, the convention which originated uh, in the antebellum era, of course, as a convention to defend slaveholding, uh, as some of the other Well, we've advanced so far beyond that, and it doesn't even look like that anymore. In fact, Southern Baptist Convention itself just recently, in the last couple of years, adopted a resolution embracing critical race theory, uh, which which is, and doing so in terms that I consider completely heretical, 
by the way, but nevertheless, as an indication of change. So, so it is not the case that they are so starkly separated, black and non-black, that we ought to think that that is a salient feature of our cultural life. I'd like to talk about some solutions to today's problems, and one that you mentioned is very interesting. It's black patriotism. I think we had a lot of pictures of black patriotism in, in my life growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't see it on display so much anymore, but maybe it's still there. They're just not featuring it. Well, it's still there, and, and there are people, and there are growing numbers of people who are speaking out. Uh, and Glenn Lowry has one of the essays in this book, uh, which talks uh, eloquently about this. And there are other people around the country who are making calls for it. But the, the broader context and concept, it says black patriotism has been squelched by this very loud campaign of disaffection that we've been talking about. And so what we're really saying is it's time to open ourselves again to expressions of black patriotism, to understand that there's no contradiction between being black and being an American patriot. Because we, when we say black patriotism, what we mean is love of the United States. Uh, we want to be very clear about that. It's not a different kind of patriotism. It is pure American patriotism. But it is that disaffection in multiple black communities that has become a barrier to our national union and our progress. So if we're going to get back on the path to successful union in the United States, it's going to take black patriotism to seal the deal, to get us there. So, so that I say it is no longer the era in which black communities can expect to advance themselves by looking for a helping hand. They must instead look to extend a helping hand. And that means rather than saying, please help us, they have to say to the United States, let us help you. William B. Allen, if people want to get a copy of the book, The State of Black America, or if they want to follow your work online, how can they do that? Well, they can certainly get the book through Amazon.com or the publisher Encounter Books, EncounterBooks.com. Uh, so it will be easy to find. And I, of course, am readily available through a search on the web. And the Center for Urban Renewal and Education is on the web at www.curepolicy.org. It's a most important book, and what a hopeful message. William B. Allen, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. It's been a real pleasure. You're most welcome. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com, where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.